Father in heaven, we are grateful for the sun which streams through these windows, a reminder that you have truly dawned upon places that have previously been in darkness. And as a token of this sun, we accept your grace and your salvation, give it to us through Christ. And Lord, as we consider your word again, we ask that your Holy Spirit will blow and move in this place, that you will enter our hearts, that you will speak comfort and joy, that you will challenge us, that you will change us, that you will grow us, that we might be imitators of the Christ child. Is our prayer in his matchless name, amen. While studying climate dynamics, as a graduate student, geography professor Donald Rusk Curry became aware of the Great Basin Bristlecone Pine population in East Nevada. And in the summer of 1964, Curry decided to go and examine an area. And when he went, he saw a, a group of trees that based on their growth, on their form, based on their size, looked like they would be very old specimens of trees that had existed hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago. During his research, he came across a tree that was later called Prometheus, and he became incredibly fascinated by this particular tree and thought it may have well been one of the oldest trees he had ever seen. So he took a 28-inch corer and drilled into the tree to try to get some readings. Unfortunately for him, he tried once, then twice, and he broke his uh, implement so many times he decided the only way he could get an accurate assessment of the age was to actually cut the tree and look at the rings inside of the bark. And so with the permission of a park ranger, they went and cut this tree down, took it to a lab. And to his astonishment, as Kari started to read the rings on the now dead tree, he realized he had made a mistake. He realized that this tree, this great basin bristlecone that he had cut down was actually close to about 5,000 years in age. And he had just cut down what was then the oldest living tree on planet Earth. There are times in our life when we drop the ball, when we make mistakes that are inexplic inexplicable, embarrassing, and damaging. I'm sure we all have moments that we can replay in our mind when a volley of words just streamed out of our mouth toward our sibling or another loved one. We all have moments we can remember when our parents said to us, Johnny, don't go to this party. But of course, we decided to go to the party. And we wake up the, night, the morning after the night before full of regret full of shame for what we have done. I'm sure we all have moments where we have had an important presentation that was supposed to be the platform to more, toward a more important career, and we went into a boardroom and we gave a presentation that was a complete train wreck. Or we have remembered being part of a school play and forgetting our lines. Or in my case, I remember being 10 and being Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music and my voice deciding to break right at the moment I was singing Edelweiss. 
All of us have moments where we have felt embarrassed, we feel like we have had a whoopsie-daisy moment, and we try to get through it even though we are flush with embarrassment. And if we were to remember those moments, your palms might become clammy, your heart may start racing, your throat may become dry as you remember your whoopsie-daisy moment. And I think, my friends, that the extent to which these whoopsie-daisy moments affect us or are magnified tend to correlate with how public they were. If you do something in the privacy of your own house, and you know you should have done better, you can take time to self-soothe, to heal yourself, to say, you know what, I could have done things better, because it was only you. But a whoopsie-daisy moment can have gargantuan proportions if it was public. For example, when Steve Harvey a few years ago read the wrong name of the winner for the Miss Universe contest, put the crown on her head, and then had to come back, open the envelope, take the crown off the winner's head and say, I am so sorry, it's not you, and give it to another person and receive for months hate mail from the country that he had robbed of being Miss Universe. It's embarrassing when you read the wrong line off the back of your credit card when you're talking to Comcast, but it's potentially career-ending when you do something of that magnitude in public. Whoopsie-daisy moments are one thing when they are private, but an entirely different thing when they are public. And this morning, I'm thinking about perhaps one of the greatest whoopsie-daisy moments that is recorded in this book that we have in front of us. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we are told of a young teenage mother who commits seemingly a whoopsie-daisy moment. Matthew 1:18 says this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be mar- married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And I imagine that Mary is engaged to Joseph. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. When he popped the question, they had a photographer ready. They were in a field of amber waves of grain. It was perfect. The sun was setting. He went down on one knee. He proposed. She accepted. People were looking forward to the wedding and the marriage of Mary and Joseph. They had sent out invitations. They had created a website. They had picked a hashtag for the wedding. Mary got Josephed. And they put down a deposit on a fabulous vineyard in the foothills of Nazareth for the day. And everyone was excited. Everyone knew this was such a good couple. They had known each other through academy. They had gone to college together. This was going to be a wonderful union. And then one day the news started to trickle out and the village became a sizzling hotbed of gossip, teeming with insinuation, accusatory glances, and you couldn't go to the market without hearing about Mary. And you'd hear people coming in as they were buying food saying, she was such a good girl, you know. They would say things like, it's a shame what happened to Mary. They would ask each other, I wonder how her father feels. If she were my daughter, I don't know if I could still have her living at home with me after she brought so much shame and embarrassment on the family. And Mary became an object of social and religious derision. Joseph, Mary's husband, does not escape the censure or the gossip that is teeming in the village at the time. 
Matthew 1 verse 19 describes him this way. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was a faithful man to the law, or just man, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. And this word that is used to describe Joseph, uh, this dikaios, Uh, being a just man, is speaking about his adherence to Torah and to the law, and it's also saying that he's a merciful man who wants to do the right thing in a socially awkward and embarrassing conversation that has now started around Mary and this bump that she has in her belly. And I can imagine that people would be going to Joseph telling him, dude, you need to figure this out. Is this your baby or not? And Joseph would do his best to stay quiet. People would come and say, you know, I heard the rabbi say in the synagogue that Joseph says he's not going to divorce Mary. He's not going to get a divorce. And they would say, what do you mean he's not going to get a divorce? Is he the father? Is he not? Well, we all know that Joseph is a just man, so I don't think he's a father. So is he going to get a divorce? No, he's not going to get a divorce. Joseph is claiming that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. The what? The Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit got her pregnant. Well, I've heard it all now. We know Joseph was a kind man, but we know what they say about carpenters. They really are not the sharpest tool in the box. And the villagers of Nazareth couldn't believe that Joseph was holding onto this charade. In fact, there were people in certain quarters, I am sure of the village and I'm sure in the synagogue, who were telling Joseph, listen, Joseph, there is a way that we can figure out who the father is. We can figure out for sure what to do. In fact, the Bible tells us Moses has given us direction about how to deal with situations like this. And they would have taken Joseph to Numbers chapter 5, And they would have told him about the test for an unfaithful wife. And I'm going to read some of it to you because it's detailed in how you're supposed to deal with people like Mary. And I will tell you it's not to sing songs or to make a play about her. This is what Numbers tells us you should do. Beginning in verse 11, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and it is concealed that she has defiled herself and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defied herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity from the past. And when you read Numbers chapter 5, it goes on to tell Uh, the husband, that if you think your husband, if you think your wife has been running around, if she has suddenly become pregnant and is claiming it's the Holy Spirit, then you bring her to the priest and the priest will scoop up some dirt from the ground of the tabernacle and also some grain from the offering, and then he will put it in some water and that water will become cursed. And then you will give it to your wife and she will drink that cursed water. 
And if she's telling the truth and it truly has not come from another man, then what will happen is that she will be just fine. But woe betide the woman who has lied and who has been unfaithful and who is claiming it's from the Holy Spirit. Then this cursed water will cause her womb to collapse. It will cause her to miscarry the child. It will cause her to be cursed. And this would have been, I'm sure, what people would have come to Joseph telling him, my friend, you need to deal with this. This is not normal. This is not socially acceptable. Can you imagine the horror of the situation, the unmitigated stench of scandal which surrounds the birth of Mary's baby? And yet Mary and Joseph don't begin a careful and orchestrated campaign of what social scientists would call impression management. They don't strategically start filtering information to present a view of themselves that is perfectly polished. They are more concerned about faithfulness to God than to public propriety. And in this story, we find the incarnation of God as a baby, riddled with questions and a host of unlikely characters. We've already spoken about the pagan astrologers who came to worship the kid. And then there were the rough and unclean shepherds who were in the fields. And now we have an unwed couple embroiled in social scandal. This is Advent. What a story. What an entrance for God to come and become man. What a whoopsie-daisy moment to choose to begin the project of salvation. And so I can imagine in the midst of this confusion, Matthew is recording some of the uh, options that Joseph sees before him in this terrible and awkward situation. He records in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and on. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And to read this story carefully is to see the beauty and the tenderness of this passage as God starts to speak to Joseph in a very difficult and sticky situation. God, in planning his entrance into the history of human activity, comes to Joseph and he asks the angel to speak to him. And although Joseph has an angel, you know, potentially parachute into his kitchen in the morning as, he is, as he's getting ready to go to work, Joseph has a decision to make. Joseph has to decide whether he's going to consent to be part of the story of God and of the salvation of the world or whether he is going to ignore it. Mary is a little more difficult. 
because she wakes up one day and the Holy Spirit has given her a child, but she still has to consent how much of a part she wants to play in the story of salvation. And in their responses, in their consent to being used in God's story, we learn an important lesson that I want to share this afternoon. The lesson which comes to me, there are many, is this, that the part we play in the story of God is often in proportion to our willingness to be used by God. We serve a God who created this world from nothing. He formed the cosmos, he formed the earth, he formed the flora and the fauna, he made all of the animals, and he was able to take the plans that he had in his mind and take it from the drawing board and make it reality. He was able to control every single thing, and then he created you and me. And as soon as God creates humanity, he injects risk and uncertainty into his plan. All of a sudden, God is trying to enter into a relationship with contingent beings who can make decisions for themselves, who can say no, thank you to God, who can desist from being part of the plan of salvation. Because God gives to each of us free will, it's irrevocable, he never takes it back, he never says you have been stinking at your decisions this week, my friend, you're on a timeout from free will. You don't get to choose for another week, just have to be in the corner and think about what you've done. When God gives us freedom, it's irrevocable. He never takes it back. And when God begins this story of salvation, we find that God does not always get what God wants in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that God is trying to begin a beautiful project, a covenantal family of love who will take the love that is in the triune God and put it onto this world created new. And then Genesis chapter 3, a decision is made, a risk is taken, and God does not get what God wants, and that love is sundered. In Genesis chapter 4, God makes a request to the offspring of Adam and Eve for sacrifice, and there is disobedience. God does not get what God wants, and in fact, the first murder on planet Earth happens. In Genesis chapter 6, not only does God not get what God wants, but we are told God is grieved to the point that he regrets having created humanity. And then the story continues. It doesn't get much better. We get to Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 34, this offspring of this original couple have become so disobedient, so recalcitrant, such professional people at not listening to God that the King James puts it in a way that I think we all may be familiar with if you've grown up in church, that these people were stiff-necked. And then... Paul, reminiscing on this in Romans chapter 10, verse 21, says that the God of Israel, in light of this lack of consent, in light of people using their irrevocable free will, his posture was this, according to Romans 10, 21, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Because God always holds his hand out in invitation. He never takes it back, even when we don't want to accept it. 
And we are reminded that we have a choice to make during Advent. We are reminded that the part we play in the story of God is often in proportion to our willingness to be used by God. And yet, for me, if I'm being very frank, and maybe you find this is the case in your life as well, being used in the story of God it means that you know stuff is going to change in your life. Being used in the story of God means that you may have to become uncomfortable. It means that you may have to add or subtract things in your life. It means that your well-laid plans for yourself or for your children may need to be disrupted or submitted to God. And when we come to a stage where God is inviting us to be part of the story of salvation and we resist, for me, it often can be Uh, taken to the root of what is behind my resistance, which is often fear. What is going to happen if I say yes to God? What is he going to want of me? How is he going to change my life? How is he going to disrupt my ordinary everyday life if I say yes? And I'm glad that Advent not only gives us the challenge, but also gives us a promise that when we decide to be part of God's story, God is going to be with us. And that is why the angel says to Joseph, do not be afraid. That is why when the invitation is made to Mary, the angel says, do not be afraid. That is why when Elizabeth and Zachariah find themselves using their retirement funds to start a nursery, the angel says, do not be afraid. That is why when the shepherds out in the field see a great light in the dark sky, the angel comes and says, do not be afraid. Fear stifles our thinking and our action. Fear hinders us from becoming the people God wants us to be. Fear steals our peace and takes our contentment. Fear can cause us to miss the saving activity of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that is why the angel speaks to this myriad of characters in the story of salvation so that they would not be so subsumed by a torrent of fear that they would make suboptimal decisions and they would miss the calling to be part of God's story of salvation. And as we reflect on Christ's first coming and our hope for his second coming, I am buoyed by the angel's hopeful announcement that in the face of justifiable fear, we are still being called to be part of his story and that we should not be afraid. I also think this afternoon about the Marys and the Josephs who are amongst us. And when I say the Marys and the Josephs who are amongst us, I am talking about those who said yes to being part of God's story of salvation in the face of opposition. I think about the 200 plus women in the North American division who like Mary heard the call of God and who evidenced the gifts of the spirit in their life that they had been chosen to bear Christ as pastors to this world. And although we are part of a community 
that welcomed those who recognized they had been given a gift to bear the Christ to this world. There were many others who faced scorn, ridicule, and condescension amongst their, commu- their communities, but who bravely persevered and persisted, believing that their call was not a whoopsie-daisy moment to be regretted, but was a glory in the highest moment to be celebrated. When I think about the Marys and Josephs amongst us, I think about those who attend Wednesday night prayer meeting in Hubeck and who come and they share week after week the stories of bearing Christ to their families and to children who no longer want anything to do with the church or with God, but who believe they have been given a call from God to bear the Christ to people who no longer know him and who have to face embarrassment and ridicule but who do it anyway because they don't believe that the call they have been given to bear Christ to people is a whoopsie-daisy moment to be regretted, but it's a glory hallelujah moment to be celebrated. I think about the incredible volunteers that work with joy and passion here in this congregation, those who work in children's ministry who have given up time and effort, but who believe in the importance of bearing Christ to our precious children and grandchildren, who frame their time, their money, and their commitment, not as a whoopsie-daisy moment did I overcommit, but rather as a glory hallelujah moment and a time to be celebrated. And I remember amongst us the saints, the children who have given their time to be with fragile parents in the sunset of their life and who give hours of tireless care and devotion. And all of these people, these Marys and Josephs who sit amongst us, who we walk amongst, all of them have counted the cost. All of them have felt the heaviness and the pain of having to carry Christ to people who need it. And yet they have persisted under the conviction that they are bearing Christ as a part of God's story of salvation. And so no matter how hard, how challenging, how much derision, no matter how much pushback, they never think that this was a whoopsie-daisy moment to be regretted, but it's a glory hallelujah moment and an occasion to celebrate. And even within this community last night as we came together at the longest night service, a service held for those who during the season struggle with the juxtaposition between having to uh, be joyful in light of the good news of Advent and also thinking about those they have loved and lost. I had the opportunity to speak with someone who came um, and who was asking for wisdom, for counsel, and for prayer. They see themselves as having a gift of hospitality, of hosting people. But at this point in their life, they have found themselves in a place that feels difficult. And they have someone in their home who has a, a, a host of needs that often feels like it's too much for them to be able to bear. They have someone that they are looking after in a situation that feels like bearing Christ to this person in need may be just a stretch too far. And so as this person shared with me, of course, my heart is just turning and my stomach is flipping and I feel terrible that this person is having to go through such difficulty. But then they looked at me and they said, wait, Uh, they said, I believe I've been called to this. 
and I'm doing this with joy, even though it's difficult. They recognize that bearing Christ to this person and being a a Mary, they recognize that accepting their part in the story of God, like a Joseph, has its cost and is not easy, but it's not a decision to be regretted. It's a moment to be celebrated. And of course, this week, we will have the opportunity with our families, with our friends, we will go out, some will come in, and we will celebrate, and rightly so, the goodness of the advent of Christ, and we will look forward as Adventists to the second advent of Christ to this world, when he will make all things new, when he will complete what he inaugurated when he first came. We look forward to those things, but Advent insists that there are some questions we need to answer. Advent does not let us off the hook. Advent is not a time where we can merely celebrate without wrestling with the difficult questions that this story presents. And for me, one of the most difficult of these is this. What challenges in your life, in my life, what challenges do you need to reframe during this season of your life? What moments or people have you dismissed as a whoopsie-daisy moment to be regretted when God may be calling you to see this as a glory in the highest occasion to behold? What mistake, what regret, what responsibility, what calling have you been given in this season as it intersects with being a beacon of hope and bearing Christ to the world. Advent is the time to consider these questions and to see with a fresh set of eyes and to imagine what God has called us to in giving us the gift of Christ. It is a time where we are to take the good news that Christ has come, that glory in the highest and goodwill to all men, that yes, Light is dawning on those in darkness that yes, Emmanuel God is with us, but that can all be wrote, that can all be pushed and left in plays, in music, in readings, unless we deal with a more urgent question of consent. Like Mary and Joseph, what part are you willing to play in the story of God? What part are you willing to take the gospel and the good news of Christ to those who are still in darkness and hopeless and we sit here with a light upon us? Will you say yes like Mary and like Joseph? Will you consent to being part of this beautiful and grand story that God has written. And I'll end by just saying this, because I understand that often if you feel like someone is appealing to you, you may recoil recoil and feel like you are being urged upon. But we are not asking, and by the grace of God, any of you to be messiahs. We already have a messiah. We are not asking any of you to be portals of salvation. We already have someone who has given us salvation. But Advent is asking us, like Mary and Joseph, 
What part are you willing to play in the story of God? What relationships, my friends, have you dismissed that God may want you to re-engage? What difficult conversations have you left undone because it was emotionally taxing that God wants you to re-engage? What is God calling you and me in this season to do as a part of his grand and beautiful and joyful story of salvation? I leave you with that and also with the blessing of the season and pray that all of you with your families, with those you love, will find a wonderful time to come together and to remember and to celebrate what Christ has done for us all.